This iconic woman spent a lifetime championing women's rights and gender equality. If you enjoy our episode on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, dive into Famous Fates, Movers, and Shakers, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every week, you'll uncover the lives and legacies of history's most daring leaders. Famous Fates is free to listen and exclusively on Spotify. As a first-year law student at Harvard, 23-year-old Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her female classmates were invited to dinner at Dean Irwin Griswold's home. After a bland dinner of chicken and lima beans, the nine women were invited to retire in the living room, along with select members of the all-male faculty. Griswold had been hosting these little dinners since 1950, when Harvard became one of the last law schools in the country to admit women. By that point, everyone on campus knew the real purpose of these annual dinners. The women were seated in a semicircle around Griswold, who then asked them, Why are you at Harvard Law School taking a place that could have gone to a man? Each woman was expected to stand up and defend herself, as though she'd personally stolen an acceptance letter from someone's mailbox. Ruth's eyes darted to her escort that evening, Professor Herbert Wexler, who'd served as chief legal advisor at the Nuremberg Trials. He had prosecuted Nazi war criminals. She had to defend her right to simply be in the same room. When it was her turn, Ruth was flushed. She forgot she had an entire ashtray in her lap. As she stood, ashes and butts went tumbling to the floor, landing in a heap on the dean's carpet. Ruth's eyes darted to Mrs. Griswold, who graciously pretended not to notice. Ruth felt her cheeks turn hot and her stomach churn. She muttered a vague answer about her husband, a fellow law student, and the importance of a woman understanding her man's work. She sat down lamely as the woman to her left told the dean that she'd come to Harvard Law to find a husband. Of course, they were all lying. Ruth and her female classmates would spend the next three years contorting every which way to make the men at Harvard Law feel comfortable. Seeing they were outnumbered 55 to 1, Ruth knew she'd need to be smarter, hungrier, and better prepared than the men she studied alongside. It was a daunting task, but she had never been one to back down from a fight. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Season 3 of Famous Fates. In this season, called Movers and Shakers, we're looking at the odds defiers, the rebels, the people who knew they were right and everyone else was wrong, and were willing to push themselves to the brink to see the change the world deserved. We've got an incredible lineup for this season, and we're thrilled to tell these stories about some truly inspirational people. As we dive into their stories, we want to think about how they made an impact on the world and how we can follow their example. Today, we're covering Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who dedicated her life to expanding legal rights for women. 
1993, Ginsburg became the second female justice on the Supreme Court and presided over a dozen landmark cases that helped to reshape a more equitable constitution. Her legal opinions opened doors for three generations of women. But above all else, her forceful dissents have spoken truth to power and come to define her legacy. Coming up, we'll pick up with Ruth's fateful rise to the courts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In 1950, many of New York City's brightest young women went to Barnard. But Celia Bader wanted more for her daughter, a true Ivy League education. No, her daughter Ruth would attend Cornell. Celia instilled in Ruth a hunger for education, insisting it was a path out of poverty. Celia herself had never gone to college. Rather, she'd taken on a job in a textile factory to help put her brother, Ruth's uncle Saul, through college. Celia Bader wanted Ruth to have the means of supporting herself, a radical idea at the time. In the 1940s, female autonomy was not the norm, but Ruth was taught to believe it was her birthright. Since childhood, Ruth had been taught to make the most of every opportunity, especially granted the climate she was born into. It was 1933, and the Great Depression was raging. She and her sister Marilyn grew up in a low-income, predominantly Jewish neighborhood in Queens. Ruth's father, Nathan, was a tough Russian-Jewish immigrant from Odessa, Ukraine. He spoke only Yiddish, but put himself through night school to learn English. Ruth's mother, Celia, was a first-generation Polish immigrant. She was smart and cunning, qualities that Nathan Bader loved about her. Though the Baders lived comfortably before the Depression, the stock market crash of 1929 strained their finances, which was all the more heartbreaking when five years later, Marilyn contracted spinal meningitis and passed away. Ruth was too young to remember her sister, though her loved ones still call her by the nickname Marilyn chose, Kiki. Ruth's parents were grief-stricken. The family moved to Flatbush in Brooklyn in an attempt to escape constant reminders of Marilyn's passing. Though Flatbush was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, Ruth and many of her peers prided themselves on their Americanness. For the most part, the neighborhood was a tolerant place where everyone had the opportunity to thrive as Jewish Americans. 
But just as the baiters got back on their feet, illness once again befell them. When Ruth was 13, her mother was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Celia Bader would spend the next four years locked in a battle with cancer, a fight she would lose the day before Ruth's high school graduation. Celia's passing devastated Ruth and her father, Nathan. But as they sat Shiva, despite their grief, Ruth came to terms with her new reality. She was 17, a high school graduate, and had few obligations keeping her in Brooklyn. In fact, the only obligation she had was that which she'd made to her mother. She would get a college education and learn to make her way in the world. It was only after her mother passed away that Ruth found out about a little secret. For the past 18 years, Celia had squirreled away almost $8,000 in savings for a college fund. It was like Celia was guiding her from the grave. Just as her mother wanted, Ruth would attend Cornell. In Ithaca, Ruth loved the freedom and excitement of college. The co-eds were kept beneath a microscope, and because men outnumbered women at Cornell five to one, the school often stepped in to play matchmaker. Over the course of her first semester, several men were sent Ruth's way, though she never entertained a second date. In her opinion, these men expected her to play second fiddle to their careers, but she'd rather be first chair. Besides, Ruth had a new love in her life, constitutional law, taught by Professor Cushman. Ruth shared her professor's interest in civil liberties and grew passionate about the role the law played in shaping personal freedoms. Which was the topic of the hour in 1950, when McCarthyism was sweeping the country. Such was her fervor for the law that in 1951, Ruth added her name to the list of students who would take the LSAT in their junior year. At the time, she was still a freshman. Her family, however, was skeptical. Law schools had admissions quotas for women. They were only allowed to make up 10% of the student body. Ruth would need a scholarship, which for women were few and far between. It was clear that women's education was seen as a less viable investment. A woman couldn't support herself as a lawyer. Even if she did get through law school, who would hire her? Still, Ruth was determined. She was scrappy and smart, unfazed by the challenges ahead. She threw herself wholeheartedly into constitutional law, falling head over heels in love. And as she worked, one fellow undergraduate took notice. Sophomore Martin David Ginsburg, who everyone called Marty, was awestruck by Ruth. He asked a friend to help set them up on a date, and they immediately clicked. Marty was genuinely impressed by Ruth's ambition and sly wit. Ruth said Marty was the only young man I dated who cared that I had a brain. The pair waited until Ruth graduated Cornell before they married in 1954. The newlyweds moved to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where Marty was stationed for active duty. Marty soon proved himself to be as atypical a husband as Ruth was a wife. For one thing, Ruth was a terrible cook and didn't have much interest in improving. So Marty rolled up his sleeves and learned to make dinner. In July 1955, the pair welcomed a daughter, Jane, into the world. But Marty didn't expect Ruth to be a stay-at-home mom. 
After he left the army, they both started Harvard Law School in 1956. Marty had already completed a year of his studies before being stationed, so they weren't in the same class, but they were in it together. Ruth's new in-laws were equally unconventional and just as supportive. They were so proud of Ruth that they paid her tuition and helped the couple afford a moderate home off campus. It was the first time in Ruth's life that she had financial means. But this safety net was of little use when, during her second year of law school, Marty was diagnosed with testicular cancer. He was too ill to continue going to class. It was a crushing diagnosis since Ruth was already managing a full class schedule and parenting their child. Yet having witnessed cancer derail her mother's life, she wouldn't allow it to do the same to theirs. She contacted the best note-takers in each of Marty's classes and provided them with carbon copy paper. After her own classes, she'd go around and collect all the carbon copy notes for Marty. Then she and a girlfriend would type up all the notes so Marty could keep up. Even with the added workload, Ruth was earning top marks in all her classes. Marty proudly told anyone who would listen that she was going to be the first woman to make the Harvard Law Review. And so she was. Ruth served as an editor for the Harvard Law Review for the next two years, a remarkable feat considering her mammoth workload. For weeks at a time, Marty would be too sick to sit upright, so he'd dictate his papers while Ruth typed, usually until two in the morning. Then she'd put her husband to bed and start in on her own work. For the majority of 1957 and 58, Ruth operated on about two hours of sleep a night. Yet Ruth was such a machine that she not only rose to the top of her class, she helped Marty achieve the best grades he'd get at Harvard. Two weeks before his graduation, Marty made a full recovery. He was soon offered a job with a prestigious firm in New York City, and the couple agreed he should take it. But if Ruth moved with him, that meant she would be unable to finish her third year of law school at Harvard. She begged Dean Griswold to allow her to complete her coursework at Columbia, but still graduate with a degree from Harvard. Griswold said no, which Ruth felt was wholly unfair. Nevertheless, she transferred to Columbia Law School and graduated in 1959, tied for first in her class. But despite an impressive resume, Ruth wasn't offered a job after graduation. While her male classmates were given their pick of half a dozen offers, she was forced to sit through 12 interviews before finally a former professor at Columbia came to her aid. The professor gave Ruth's name to Edmund L. Palmieri, a U.S. district judge, and refused to recommend anyone else for clerking until she was offered a job. Ruth would work as a clerk with Palmieri for two years, throughout which she was paid notably less than her male counterparts. But granted it was her first job, she didn't complain. Knowing the culture she was up against, Ruth was grateful for the opportunity and determined to make the most of it. Coming up, Ruth joins the ACLU and tries her first landmark case. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. In 1959, with the help of a trusted professor, 26-year-old Ruth Bader Ginsburg won a job working as a clerk for a U.S. district judge. Even though the judge had initially been wary of hiring a woman, she made sure it was the best decision he'd ever made. After two successful years of cutting her teeth, Ruth left her position in 1961 to take on an exciting opportunity with Columbia Law School's International Procedure Project. Over the next two years, she co-authored a book on the Swedish legal system. Her work with Columbia would inform her approach to lawmaking for the rest of her life. That same year, 1961, a ruling out of Florida set the tone for the next stage of the women's liberation movement. Back then, women in Florida were automatically exempt from jury duty. If they wanted to serve on juries, they were able to volunteer, but it was never mandatory. Gwendolyn Hoyt's case would challenge that. Hoyt was convicted of murdering her husband by an all-male jury, a perceived violation of her rights. By excluding women, Hoyt had not received an impartial jury of her peers. Her counsel likened gender discrimination to racial discrimination in the jury selection. The case made its way to the Supreme Court, which ultimately upheld the Florida statute. This was a blow to women's rights activists. It proved that the court did not believe sex discrimination was a legitimate occurrence. For the ACLU and Women's Lib, this became a central focus of the movement, convincing the Supreme Court that discrimination on the basis of sex was as damaging and limiting as racial discrimination. As progressives continued to fight for equality in the courts, Ruth saw this case as a jumping-off point to develop her own feminist curriculum in schools. In 1963, after concluding her work with Columbia, Ruth took a position teaching at Rutgers University Law School in New Jersey. That year, the Equal Pay Act passed in Congress, the first piece of federal legislation to prohibit sex-based discrimination. But gender equality still had a long way to go. While teaching at Rutgers, Ruth's students asked her to teach a class on gender-based law. No such class existed at the time, but the dean was thrilled with her request to design one. In some ways, seeing her students' voracious appetite for this emerging kind of law inspired Ruth to become a litigator. She began taking on sex-based discrimination cases in Newark, slowly making a name for herself as a women's rights activist. 
She, too, understood that proving sex discrimination was extraordinarily difficult. But the Ginsburgs brought their work home. Ruth and Marty built a loving, progressive household, in many ways reflective of the 1960s counterculture. Professor Jane S. DeHart, author of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Life, said of the future justice, Her view of feminism was very firmly shaped by Swedish feminism, which argued that to be both fully human, both men and women had to share in parental responsibilities and the burden and compensations of work. This decade of sweeping social change was thrilling for someone like Ruth. In the span of two years, Congress passed the Equal Pay Act, the Civil Rights Act, and the Voting Rights Act. Michigan Congresswoman Marsha Griffiths reintroduced the Equal Rights Amendment on the floor of the House every year, though it would fail to pass the House until 1971. And after years of fighting for equality in the lower courts in the winter of 1969, Ruth saw a new chance to apply her unique perspective on a larger stage. Sharon and Joseph Frontiero married in 1969. At the time, Sharon was a physical therapist at Maxwell Air Force Base Hospital in Montgomery, Alabama. On her first post-wedding paycheck, the 23-year-old expected to see a larger housing allowance, much as her male colleagues had received after tying the knot, but she didn't. Her husband, Joe, was a full-time college student at the time. He received $205 a month under the GI Bill as a Navy veteran and earned another $30 a month working part-time as an overnight security guard. The couple had been relying on the increased stipend to make ends meet. But Sharon discovered that women did not receive this bonus unless their husbands were entirely dependent on them. Joe's whopping $235 a month made them ineligible. After a year of trying to rectify the situation through official channels, Sharon took matters into her own hands. She turned to a local Montgomery attorney named Joseph Levin Jr. and his partner, Morris Deese. These men were soon to establish the now-legendary Southern Poverty Law Center. When the case was first argued before a three-judge panel, Frontiero's case was struck down two to one. But Levin and Deese were encouraged by the supportive judge's strongly worded dissent. Levin promised the Frontieros they'd only begun to fight. He turned to the ACLU, asking for help taking the case to the Supreme Court. It would take two years for the case to work its way through the court system. During that time, 38-year-old Ruth and her peers had married themselves to the idea that the women's rights movement could become the social justice issue of the 70s, much as the civil rights movement had captured the spirit of the 60s. In fact, Ruth began to model her approach to social justice after Thurgood Marshall, the Supreme Court's first black justice. Ruth's aim was to look for specific cases that would prove her point and form good laws. She also became the director of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. If a sex discrimination case was making its way to the Supreme Court, the WRP worked to mold the case into an argument they knew would succeed. 
which was how, in 1972, Ruth ended up at the helm of Sharon Frontiero's case. It would be her first before the Supreme Court, and it had to be absolutely perfect. Ruth and her legal partner spent months poring over cases that could demonstrate systematic oppression on the basis of sex. In the brief, Ruth wrote that throughout American history, women had been branded inferior to men and seen as a waste of resources. She wanted the court to understand what it meant to be a second-class citizen. In a later interview, Ruth remembered being horribly nervous on January 17, 1973, as she stood before the Supreme Court to address nine men. In her estimation, they did not believe that discrimination on the basis of gender existed. But Ruth also knew she had a captive audience. Whether they were listening out of interest or obligation didn't matter. And they didn't expect the breadth and depth of Ruth's reasoning. After delivering a powerful, all-encompassing argument, she ended on a quote from 19th century abolitionist Sarah Grimke. I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Five long months after the hearing, a reporter finally called Ruth to break the news. She had won what is now considered a landmark case in the women's liberation movement. But Ruth was upset by the sudden news. In addition to winning Frontiero's case, she had hoped for a larger review of the constitutionality of sex-based discrimination. She expected to give several more oral arguments on the matter before the court would vote on whether to extend the ruling more broadly, a legal process known as strict scrutiny. She was dismayed to learn that they already had voted, and they decided not to apply strict scrutiny. One small consolation to Ruth was that Justice Thurgood Marshall had been deeply moved by her argument. Word spread through the grapevine that he had been her champion behind closed doors. Knowing this, Ruth couldn't help but feel inspired to keep going. In a moment, Ruth Bader Ginsburg becomes the reigning voice of dissent on the Supreme Court, earning her the moniker Notorious RBG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. In 1973, 39-year-old Ruth Bader Ginsburg successfully argued before the Supreme Court for the very first time. Despite the win, though, she saw an inherent problem. The men of the Supreme Court ruled that her client had faced gender-based discrimination, but saw it as an isolated incident. They didn't understand the wider problem at play. Gender-based discrimination hurt everyone, not just the individual women impacted directly. Ruth began looking for a case that could prove her point. Luckily, her devoted husband, Marty, delivered. 
a tax lawyer, he came across a case called Moritz v. Commissioner of Internal Revenue. Intrigued, Ruth cracked the file open. It was the case she'd been waiting for. While Ruth had been busy making a name for herself at the ACLU, a widower named Stephen Weisenfeld was fighting to support his family. His wife had passed away in 1970, mere hours after giving birth to the couple's healthy baby boy, Jason. Grief-stricken, Stephen dedicated himself to rearing his baby, embracing his role as a single father. However, taking care of Jason made it impossible to work. Stephen inquired about Social Security benefits he could receive as a sole surviving parent. But he was told that as a man, he didn't qualify for the mother's benefit. Stephen took his case to court, arguing that men should be awarded the same benefits as widowed women. Initially, he lost, but he appealed, and as the case made its way through the district courts, Ruth saw its potential. By having a man in the plaintiff's chair, she would give the Supreme Court someone to relate to. She could show that gender-based discrimination hurt everyone, men included. Ruth took the case before the Supreme Court in 1975. This time, her argument was so compelling that all nine justices unanimously voted in her favor. The case was so successful that it delivered a strategy for arguing gender-based discrimination cases well into the 80s. Ruth felt the law would be changed one step at a time. Her approach was conservative but steadfast. Over the next five years, she won five out of the six cases she argued before the Supreme Court. These rulings would slowly shape the legal landscape of the United States, creating a more equitable world for women. By 1980, her work had caught the attention of newly elected President Jimmy Carter, whose first order of business was diversifying the makeup of the federal bench. He appointed Ruth to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, it was an enormous honor for Ruth, whose new title would become Judge Bader Ginsburg. Ever the feminist, Marty left his impressive, high-paying job in New York to move the family to Washington, D.C. The way Marty saw it, Ruth had spent the first half of their marriage keeping a home while he built his career. Now it was time to return the favor. Over the next 13 years, Marty allowed Ruth's career to take precedent. Not only did he uproot his life to follow her to Washington, he advocated for his wife at any opportunity. And in 1993, he outdid himself once more. When Supreme Court Justice Byron White announced his retirement, Marty was determined to see Ruth take his place. In later interviews, Ruth's colleagues fondly remembered the lobbying campaign Marty launched on his wife's behalf. He called every woman's group, social justice litigator, and liberal lobbyist he could think of, asking for their support in appointing Ruth. But as much as Marty got her in the room, it was Ruth who sealed the deal. President Bill Clinton recalled their interview, where she spoke passionately about the future of lawmaking. Twenty minutes into the conversation, he knew he had his candidate. Ruth was confirmed by the U.S. Senate on August 3, 1993. The vote was a stunning 96 to 3. Over the next 27 years, 
Ruth heard dozens of pivotal cases in the fight for equity. The first of these was in 1996 in the United States v. Virginia. This well-known case struck down the male-only admissions policy at Virginia Military Institute. In Ruth's opinion for the case, she wrote, Generalizations about the way women are, estimates of what is appropriate for most women, no longer justify denying opportunity to women whose talent and capacity place them outside the average description. In other words, it was no longer acceptable to assume what was best for women. From there on out, women would have the right to decide for themselves. The decision allowed women to enter VMI as cadets, but it also opened doors for women across every field. This decision is largely regarded as the most important opinion she penned while serving on the Supreme Court. Ruth gathered steam as she ruled in favor of housing rights for Americans with mental disabilities in 1999. Shortly after, in the early aughts, she voted in favor of eco-conservation, anti-gerrymandering laws, and pay equity. But while her progressive agenda often put her on the side of the majority, Ruth truly became known for sharp-witted dissents, especially as the court began to skew more conservative in the 2000s. Ruth became the farthest left judge on the court. While she got along with the other justices in private, her opinions were oftentimes isolated. Then, in 2010, Ruth suffered a devastating blow. Marty contracted terminal cancer. In his last letter to Ruth, he wrote, My dearest Ruth, you are the only person that I have loved in my life. I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell some 56 years ago. What a joy it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. In the letter, Marty told Ruth he was ready to prepare for the end of his life. If, true to her nature, she disagreed, he assured her, I will not love you a jot less. Marty Ginsburg passed away on June 27, 2010 at age 78. A man always confident and proud to champion Ruth's ambition as her best asset. A few years after Marty's passing, a case made its way to the Supreme Court that is thought to be one of the most significant rulings of our lifetime, Shelby County v. Holder. Ruth believed that the ruling was unconstitutional and infringed upon the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Voting Rights Act was enacted to protect minority groups from voter suppression. While the black community had been legally able to vote since 1870, harsh Jim Crow laws often made it nearly impossible for them to do so. The Voting Rights Act was a way to challenge these restrictions and make sure everyone got a real chance to vote. A key provision of the act was Section 5. It mandated that certain states needed federal approval to make changes to their voting policies to ensure the new policies weren't discriminatory. However, in April 2010, Shelby County, Alabama, asked the federal court in Washington, D.C. to declare Section 5 unconstitutional. The case made its way to the Supreme Court two years later. For many, it seemed like an open-and-shut argument. The Voting Rights Act had a flawless track record. There was no need to chip away at its power. 
But on June 25, 2013, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four in favor of Shelby County, determining that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional. Justice Roberts justified the ruling by essentially arguing that Section 5 had been so successful in protecting against racial discrimination that it was no longer needed. For many, this was a nonsensical blow to social progress. The ruling incited outrage from many communities of color and social progressives who worried that voter suppression would once again be a fixture in elections moving forward. Justice Ginsburg was one of these objectors. In her dissenting opinion, she wrote that throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. She went on to say, the sad irony of today's decision lies in the court's utter failure to grasp why the law has proved effective. Her dissent resonated with many progressives, especially millennials, who until that point had often been accused of political inactivity. Documentarian Betsy West believes that Ruth's appeal to young people is largely based on her willingness to speak truth to power. Overnight, she was launched to icon status. Over the past few years, Ruth has become a recurring character on Saturday Night Live, as portrayed by cast member Kate McKinnon. And in the summer of 2013, then-NYU law student Shauna Kiznick created a meme that would catch fire on social media. Kiznick took a photo from rapper Biggie Smalls' famous King of New York photo shoot and photoshopped the crown he was wearing onto Justice Ginsburg. The accompanying catchphrase was simple. You can't spell truth without Ruth. By 2015, the notorious RBG was a pop culture icon. In a world of Washington politics, she cut through the noise, delivering on her promise to advocate for social justice. In short, she was an inspiration. She was also a soothsayer. In the years since Ginsburg's landmark descent, the voter suppression she warned against has come to pass in several ways. The 2013 Shelby County mandate has led to voter purging in Ohio and rampant racially discriminatory gerrymandering in Texas. North Carolina quickly cut back on early voting, and Mississippi rolled out an identification act that had been previously denied under the Voting Rights Act for being discriminatory. These voter suppression tactics still stand today, and for many progressive thinkers, it feels like taking up Ruth's mantle is the only way to honor her legacy. In the last few years of her life, Ruth reached superstar status. Her poise, sharp wit, and tireless work ethic was nothing short of inspiring. She had a clear sense of moral obligation and was uncompromising in her values. Ruth and her female peers gave women a legal foundation to stand on. And even though true equality is still far away, the movement has never been stronger. Ruth's passing on September 18, 2020, was felt deeply by the millions of activists who looked to her for inspiration and guidance. For many, her death could not have come at a worse time, amidst a pandemic and just six weeks before a national election. It can feel daunting to fight amidst such turmoil. 
But we must remember that the social progress Ruth spurred was not made despite chaos, but because of it. We are charged with honoring her legacy by doing the same. Thanks again for tuning in to Famous Fates, Movers, and Shakers. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with another story about the people who knew they were right when everyone else was wrong and were willing to push themselves to the brink to see the change the world deserved. Movers and Shakers is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Famous Fates was written by Aaron Lan, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>